Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, chaplain, professor, writer, and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today's title is Terror, Israel, and Land Claims. By now, everyone will have known that the Hamas, the government of the Gaza Strip, has launched a surprise terrorist assault on Jews in Israel last weekend. They killed around a thousand soldiers and mostly civilians, and the Israeli government has since declared war on Gaza. So Aaron, given all the wars that are raging around the world in any given generation, why are we covering this topic in this podcast? There's four reasons why I thought it would be timely for us to have this conversation. The first is I was asked by some of my listeners to address this because many people are not familiar with the history of Israel, especially over the last 2,000 years. Uh, Secondly, there's a lot of intense historical interest about Israel among Christians, which affect people's eschatological perspectives. This is not going to be the primary concern of this podcast, but I'm just raising it because people are interested in Israel because of eschatological issues and because of the history of scripture. Uh, Third, it's affecting the West. It's affecting countries like Canada. In our own country, we've had pro-Hamas protesters in our major cities, and the same has taken place in England and in the United States. Jews and Palestinians live here in our countries, so we need to have a conversation about the history of these people groups and the land claims and the, the, the conflicts. And fourth, one of my main reasons is I, I'm just seeing a lot of false statements being made by Christians, not so much by the media yet. It's interesting that the media, I think, is restrained and is siding at this point with victims of terrorism. I'm not sure how long that's going to last, but I'm seeing a lot of false claims made by Christians that probably fall into about four categories. One would be the conspiracy crowd, that this is we, we this is brought to you by the same people that brought the vaccine conspiracies or these climate change conspiracies or these nonsensical claims. I would just say this isn't a conspiracy. This is just flat out evil. There's evil people in the world. It's not always particularly complicated to figure out why things are happening the way they are. It's because there's evil in the world. And it's also probably not the best time for you to be promoting conspiracies or even promoting, I'll say this to some of my Reformed brothers or dispensational brothers, probably not the best time and most appropriate time to be correcting people's eschatology or people's views on Israel versus the new Israel. You can have those conversations at another point in time, but I think you lack some wisdom if the first thing you want to do is correct Mm -hmm. uh, a person's view of Israel versus the Israel of God or the continuities and discontinuities exist between the church and Israel. Uh, The second category would be, uh, I think there's a group that just doesn't want to talk about it, and I'm seeing a lot of silence from Christian leaders on this subject. They don't want to talk about it because they don't want to be branded as dispensationalists or they don't want to uh, endorse the Israeli government. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Third, I I think there's 
a, a, a huge lie being promulgated in culture, and that is, and I'll borrow Ben Shapiro's language, that is that there's some sort of moral equivalency between the conduct of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, as they've bombed Palestinian towns, and that the Palestinians in terms of their terroristic response. And that is just a complete myth. It's an absolute lie and it needs to be debunked. We'll talk about that more. And the, the fourth category would be those that would suggest that the Gazans or the Palestinians are the victims of years of occupation. That is also a myth. You know, it's interesting, Chris, that even our local mosque is raising funds mm. to support the Gazans in this quote-unquote humanitarian crisis, but has yet to denounce, at least as of yesterday, they had not denounced the Hamas attacks. And we've seen this from a lot of Islamic leaders. One of the main differences, by the way, between Islam and Christianity is that Christians aren't afraid to denounce and criticize their own when they fail or when they do something horrific. Muslims don't seem to be willing to do that to the degree that I think they should. And that's one of the reasons why there's suspicion often. So if you're listening to my podcast and you are of the Islamic religion, I've spent a lot of time with Muslims. I have a heart for Muslims. But you would do well to start to criticize players like Hamas among your own ranks. Otherwise, you are actually culpable for uh, and complicit in some of these events. But we have those that would say, oh, you know, the Palestinians are the victims. I can't believe the IDF is cutting off power or bombings. Well, we'll talk about this here and there in the podcast, but let's just um, maybe throw a couple things out. The Israelis have paid for Palestinian power since I believe about 2017 because they refused to foot the bill. It's called war. You don't provide power and water and resources to your enemy when their government that you elected twice just destroyed over a thousand of your people and put probably 5,000, last count, in the hospital. Like, what planet are you living on? And I got to say, I just don't even, I don't trust mm -hmm. a lot of what's coming out of Palestine. This morning on Twitter, there was a, a picture of a guy sitting in a pile of rubble and the heading said something about he'd lost his whole family in a, a Jewish bombing. And he's got this somehow untouched, relatively brand new giant teddy bear sitting in this pile of rubble that he has his hands on. Okay, that that's called fake news, folks. Th these are these are uh, as as if I'm going to believe people that came into Israel and slaughtered babies and decapitated people when they post pictures on social media, supposedly depicting um, presenting themselves as victims. Okay, you're not victims. You're an aggressive nation who has destroyed innocent life. The best thing that you could do if you're a Palestinian, if you actually care about life, is denounce publicly what Hamas has done mm -hmm. and join the IDF and others in shooing out this heinous terrorist group in the Gaza Strip and wherever it would seek to find refuge. These are the reasons why I want to discuss this. I was asked about it. There's a lot of interest. It affects us, and there's a lot of lies floating around mm -hmm. in uh, in conversations, especially on social media. Yeah. So maybe you could bring us up to speed because some listeners may be listening to different news sources or just at different places in their understanding of this 
uh, issue this story really because it's fairly recent. What have we heard so far regarding the terror attacks? So I'll, I'll cover this very briefly because there's lots of news. You can go on Fox, CNN, CBC. There's lots BBC. There's all sorts of news outlets out there that are that are covering this, and they all seem to be in lockstep at this point, uh, chastising Hamas. So just in terms of the background, Israel was about to sign a historic historic treaty, historic treaty with Saudi Arabia, which would have been huge because Saudi Arabia is a big player in that part of the world, and so is Israel. And of course, we know that countries like Iran do not want that to happen because Iran is Shia and Saudi Arabia is Sunni. So two different, the two main branches of Islam due to a rift that arose after the death of the, uh, their prophet Muhammad. And we do know that Iran has historically been involved in funding and supporting Hamas and Islamic Jihad groups and the former PLO and whatnot. So all of this was taking place and all of a sudden out of the blue, Hamas fighters infiltrate Israel. There's a lot of questions about whether or not they had plants in IDF or maybe in the in the government or how, how this massive intelligence failure happened or whether it was just a matter of being asleep at the wheel on, on behalf of the Israeli government. But regardless, thousands of uh, Hamas fighters, 1,500 of which I believe have been killed, uh, infiltrated Israel using paragliders on foot, motorcycles, confiscated vehicles, and attacked some military bases, killed some soldiers, which one would expect if there was a declaration of war. But what's really shocking is the slaughter of the innocents and then excuses being made by many Islamic leaders around the world. Well, everyone in Israel is is actually uh, part of the military. Oh, really? Like a four-and-a-half-year-old, a four-and-a-half-month-year-old that was um, carried away by a Hamas fighter as a member of the military? Well, like, what planet are you living on? So they, they, they killed or injured, decapitated uh, thousands or hundreds of people and injured thousands of all ages, men and women, and they're also responsible now for the mounting death toll in Palestine. I would agree that every single death, either on the Gaza side or on the Israeli side, is exclusively the fault of Hamas. As they have, as the duly elected, now they, I know they function as dictators now, government of Gaza, sanction the attack on a sovereign state. And you, by the way, you don't you don't get to terrorize people and then run home and play the victim card. Mm -hmm. You don't get to do that. You don't get to terrorize people and then when they retaliate, run home and play the victim card. They've taken hostages, which they will not give back. If the Palestinian people are moral and upright, they will rat out Hamas. They will point out their locations. They will point out the locations of the hostages to Israel and take the moral high ground. These terrorists came in, they attacked the various kibbutzim, small villages throughout uh, southern Israel. They murdered children, and then they even went so far as to post murder videos on things like social media. Like, this is disgusting conduct. Now, why, why do they do this? Well, Hamas believes that the entire area, which they call Palestine, is rightfully the Muslims, and cannot be given up, not one square 
centimeter of it. And so their policy is the equivalent of Hitler's Mein Kampf. They, they want to exterminate the Jews. They want to push them from the river into the sea, which is a reference to the Jordan River into the Mediterranean Sea. As you, of course, we most people are probably familiar with the fact that in 2005, up to 2005, Israel had occupied with uh, military forces part uh, the Gaza Strip. We'll discuss the reasons for that. They occupied that area. They've since pulled out. Hamas was elected, I think, in 05, or 06 and 07 and have not brought any benefit to the Palestinian people. But a large portion of the Palestinian people, if you look at them cheering as hostages are being dragged through the streets, are on board with uh, Hamas, as is much of the Palestinian diaspora, including those in Canada. This is why, again, I have yet to see a significant Islamic leaders in Canada denouncing Hamas and denouncing these attacks. So... Jews, we know, uh, in Israel at least, are a multi-religious. There's secular Jews. There's religious Jews. It's it's much more like Canada in that regard. It's a multiplicity of religious or non quote unquote non-religious persuasions. Um, so that kind of hopefully that brings people up to speed with what has happened. If you haven't heard much about it, it's an absolute tragedy, uh, and um, that's why we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we know, well, we should hopefully know that current events are rooted in history. And I think as I've discussed with people, there's there's quite a few people that seem unaware of the history of the Jewish people in Israel. Maybe they're born more recently and there hasn't been as many conflicts to bring it to the surface or whatnot. Um, what would you say about the history and maybe some of the questions I hear, like, are they colonizers or are they occupiers of the land? How would you uh, frame that up? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll refer to a couple good sources. If you want to read about the history of Israel, most Christians are familiar with the history of Israel as recorded in the Bible, but there's a good book called The Dawn of the Promised Land by, um, I believe it was Ben Wicks that I read several years ago. You can Google that one. There's another one that I've been working through called Israel, uh, A Concise History of the Nation Reborn by Daniel Gordis. These are books that help to give you a kind of a macro-level understanding of the history of Israel, especially from the the time of uh, Christ uh, up to up to the present, and not just Israel as a nation, but the Jewish people. But let's let's do a little bit of a historical background because we often hear people, even in the West and in the media, talking about the Jewish occupation mm-hmm. of Gaza or Jews as colonizers. In fact, the the Black Lives Matter movement has hopped on the bandwagon. Some of our Canadian Union representatives have ta- hopped on the bandwagon and are standing with Palestine under this false premise that mm-hmm. Israel is occupying Palestine or Palestinian territories, or that they're colonizers, you know, on par with European colonizers that came to destroy, you know, indigenous folks here in North America, which in and of itself isn't true. We've discussed that in in other episodes. So I want to begin. I want to go through several periods in in the J- Jewish history. And again, I, I I want to differentiate between Israel as a state, as we pro- as we currently know it, and the Jewish people. Um, Israel as a nation state, we want to acknowledge right at the onset, has rejected the Messiah. They've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They are antichrist. Their their government 
has just as much corruption in it as any quote unquote secular government. Canada has corruption in its government. The Israeli government has corruption in it. And Christians and Messianic Jews alike should do, frankly, a better job in criticizing and calling out the Israeli government whenever they fail to abide by God's laws. I think there are many who are so concerned about being called anti-Semite or being thought to be opponents of Israel that they don't criticize it. It's just everything they do is great, and it's just not true. So I'm not here to say Israel is, the Israeli state is a righteous nation. I'm not here to say that. Mm. I'm not here to say that they they get uh, a pass on all of their decisions. But we do need to set the facts straight on a macro level. Obviously, there's always bad people. There's bad Jews. There's bad Arabs. There's bad Caucasians. There's bad Asians. There's bad Africans. There's bad people everywhere that do bad things. But on a macro level, we need to set the record straight with regard to these allegations of colonialization and occupation. I also want to declare that I love Arab people and I love Jewish people. And this is not some sort of a ethno-supremist podcast. Mm -hmm. I've had more friends over the years that are of, of Arab heritage than I have had exposure to Jewish people, although I've been to Israel. But I've had several friends that are Arab or from Middle Eastern descent, and many that I, many who are Muslims too, that I have evangelized. And I, and I would just say one thing that neither group should be doing is dehumanizing the other. So in all honesty, I felt very uncomfortable when I heard a couple of uh, um, Israeli parliamentarians and and even a, a, a general say things like, they're not they're, they're animals, they're not humans, they're animals. Well, I understand that their behavior is animalistic and it's disgusting and it needs to be chastised, but let's not make the same mistake that the anti-Semites make in dehumanizing our opponents. So yeah. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go pretty hard on Hamas in this podcast, but I think we have to be careful not to dehumanize them. They are still human beings. They deserve to be put to death. They deserve to be hunted down and their behavior is disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting, but they're not dogs and they're not animals. They are human beings and they need to be held to account as such. In fact, if they are animals, there's no ultimate accountability, but mm -hmm. because they are made in the image and likeness of God, this is why they're subject to justice, in including just killing in war or capital execution if they're apprehended. So here's the facts. In and around, we'll use rough dates, probably going to be off by five to 10 years just for the sake of helping people to remember. Abraham is, of course, the forefather of the Jewish nation. And he enters, comes out of Mesopotamia. He enters what was known as the land of Canaan around 1850 BC. So that's a long time ago, almost 4,000 years ago, 3,900 years ago. A couple hundred years later, they, uh, of course, his he has Isaac, he has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph ends up in Egypt because of famine. A few generations later, they enter Egypt, and um, that would have been around 1650, so 100, 
150, 200 years, closer to 200 years after Abraham and his immediate descendants were in the land we now know as Israel, or Palestinians called Palestine. It was called Canaan then. So we got a couple. We got we got uh, the the initial Jews. Want to call them that? Were there for two centuries? Let's just say, and then they are living in Egypt for a couple hundred more years, over 200 years. Then the Exodus happens in and around 1440. And then 40 years later, the conquest, the re-entering of the land of Canaan, uh, about 350-ish years after Abraham first entered it. Some people might think, no, just a second here. I thought there was 400 years. The Bible says they were in Egypt for 400 years. Well, to be accurate, they were in Egypt for a little over 200 years. And the 400 years mentioned in the Bible is presumably calculated from the time Abraham entered the land and didn't take full possession of it until the time of the Exodus. So that's, that's your four centuries. So Israel then engages in battles with the various Canaanite tribes. They conquer some, they assimilate with others. They establish a kingdom under the judges. They then establish a united kingdom under Saul and then under uh, David. The kingdom grows. We have a split in the kingdom in 930 BC when Rehoboam disregarded uh, the advice of his father's counselors, and we have the split kingdom. So in the north, we have Israel, what's called the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, composed of 10 tribes. And the kingdom in the south was known as Judah, but it was actually the tribes of Judah and Benjamin merged. So now we have a, a, a rift which lasts for a couple hundred more years. In 722, key date, the Assyrians come in and they deport the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. And they replace, they, they leave a few handfuls of Jews behind. They replace many of the Jews with captured peoples from other parts of the world who then intermarry with the Jews. And we have the rise of the Samaritans, which are half Jew, half Gentiles. The southern kingdom survives until 586. They're deported for 70 years into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and that's where we have Daniel and Ezekiel, and those, those exilic prophets, and then they return to the land. And there's a brief period of time when there's a, uh, a Hasmonean kingdom that rises up, but more or less they're, they, they go through uh, about six centuries up to the time of Christ of subjugation. So they're subjugated to the Babylonians, they're subjugated to the Medes and the Persians, there's then, they're then subjugated to the Greeks. And by the time we get into the New Testament, they're subjugated to the Romans, who mm -hmm. are now the world superpowers. We've got those four kingdoms there. We obviously know about the ministry of Christ. Fast forward after that, in 70 AD, there's revolts among the Jews against Roman occupation. The Jerusalem is is sacked, it's destroyed. And from from there on, there's no there's no real sense that the Jews are welcome in in that what at the time was a Roman province. Mm -hmm. So hundreds of thousands of Jews are killed during that period of time and over the next couple of centuries during various revolts. So we're talking the first century and then during the 100s as well, there's a series of revolts. Jewish lands are confiscated. So they're not, it's not factual to say they were all deported, mm -hmm. but they started leave. A lot of them were murdered by the Romans. A lot of them leave the land because they can't survive 
being executed generation after generation. So they leave. And um, then just fast forwarding, a, a remnant of Jews, a very small remnant, remains in the land of Egypt under various governments and rulers right up until the creation of Israel. So there's always handfuls of Jews uh, in the land. I don't know if there was ever a period of time from the fall of Jerusalem in 70 until the present where there weren't some Jews in the land. But just going back a little bit, um, I want to talk about this word Palestine. So we often hear this Palestine, Arabs that live there today call themselves Palestinian. That's actually a European word that was bestowed on that landmass by the Romans. So it was a, it was a Roman province called Palestine. I think that language came into play in and around the second century-ish. Don't quote me on that, but it was in and around that time. And it's under Roman control. So how long was it under Roman control? Well, it's actually under Roman control up to 629 AD. And then, of course, with the rise of Islam, the Arabs, so out of the Arabian Peninsula, which were the initial ethnic group that composed the Muslim people, in 629, they come and they conquer Palestine. So now from 629, which is roughly 1,400 years ago, Arab people are now living in Palestine. So keep in mind, just to kind of drive this home, Abraham shows up in and around 1850 BC. Okay? So we're talking about two and a half, two and a third millennia later that the Arabs, who now call themselves Palestinians, move into the land and adopt a European word, a Roman word to describe themselves. And that's, we'll, we'll come back to that later. So the Arabs are living there. It's not, it never, it never becomes like a nation. So Palestine wasn't like the nation of Israel with a king or a cabinet or a prime minister. It was a smattering of tribes, of Palestinian Arab tribes throughout the land. The Ottoman Turks come to power several hundred years later in 1299. They eventually take over Palestine and they essentially, the Ottoman Empire as we know, which governed a large part of Asia, rules that area of the world from 1299 up to 1922. So that's up to the last 100 years or so. They get thrown out in 1922 under the League of Nations, which is like the precursor to the United Nations. The British administer the region of Palestine after the Ottomans are booted out until about 1948, until 1948 actually, and then that's when the, the state of Israel is, is formed. So when, and, and, and this is kind of an interesting thing, I'm, I'm kind of going to go forward, then I'm going to come back a little bit. So if we, if we go back to the 1800s, lots of things had, had taken place in the centuries leading up to the 1800s in Europe. The Jews, many of them were living in Europe. Some in North Africa, places like Morocco, Fez, these sorts of places. They probably, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, they probably have been the most, most ethnically described, uh, despised, discriminated group in world history. And you can have all different theories as to why that's the case. 
But Jews were murdered and killed routinely uh, in countries all through Europe, in Poland, in England, all through Europe, hundreds and hundreds of years of persecution. When they would rise up, they'd get crushed. They There was laws put into place at various points in time that made the, the killing of Jews legal. They were they were beheaded, they were slaughtered, their, their women were raped, their children were drowned. Uh, they were, there was times when they weren't permitted to buy property. So if, when you think of the Jews, all through European history, there was uh, a, an emphasis on anti-Semitism. And so in the 1800s, and you can study the details of this, there's various people in various European and even in the North American continent, they were starting to say, you know what, this just can't go on. Like, essentially, we've been out of uh, our our homeland for 1,700 plus years. Our people have been slaughtered and put to death now in multiple countries for centuries. And over the course of time, there were movements that decided we need to start moving back. There was discussions about going to Argentina, mm-hmm. but we need to start going back to what was our original homeland for thousands of years. So there was a series of what are called upgoings, which took place in 1882, which is decades before the state of Israel came became official. Decades before that, there were various movements of Jews that would move in large numbers, hundreds and thousands, into Palestine, what was known as Palestine, either under the Ottomans mm-hmm. or later under the, the Brits from 1922 forward. Now, just to kind of picture this, when, when they went into Palestine, the land had essentially been untended for centuries. So it was swampy. Uh, it was wild. It was overrun. Uh, there were villages all through Palestine, Arab, primarily Arab villages with some Jewish settlements. Around seven to eight hundred, to be more accurate, uh, Arab villages scattered throughout throughout Israel. The early Jews were a little bit perplexed by this because there was no one person to appeal to among the Palestinians. They uh, there was no like one person to negotiate with. They could negotiate with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, the leader of the Ottoman Empire, but there was nobody in Palestine. So it was it was it was very very much of a, a wild sort of tribalistic area, not exactly prime real estate. I emphasize this because countries that are now Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Lebanon, they didn't want it. It's just junk land for the most part. It had been untended for a long, long time, but it had historical significance to the Jews. And they started moving uh, to that region. And there was conflict. Some people think it was primarily a religious movement. It wasn't. There were religious Jews that came for religious reasons. There were religious Jews that lived there that despised those that came that were secular. There were various worldviews. Uh, that were represented. There was the European Jews, there was the Asian Jews, there was the African Jews, North American Jews that were moving there at various points in time. And then around 1920, largely through the efforts of one man, the Hebrew language was revived. So he basically said, my wife and I are going to learn modern Hebrew, we're going to kind of develop the language. And they they, they said to their kids, you're only speaking this language. 
and it was just them. And they and then over time it caught on, and they, it's kind of miraculous, really. The Hebrew language was literally revived when it had been functionally dead for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Most of the Jews in Europe, for example, would have spoken Yiddish, and then Russian if they were in Russia or German if they were in Germany, okay? Now, everybody knows what happened to the Holocaust. So all of a sudden, after centuries of persecution, this is amped up. So keep in mind, from 1882 up till the Second World War, there's thousands of Jews moving back to Palestine. They're legally buying land. This is important. They're legally buying land from people who wanted to sell their land off. So they're buying land. There were some significant, very wealthy uh, Jews in Europe that would send money. They would buy large tracts of land. Ottomans got a little freaked out by that. At one point in time, banned it. But the local governments, which would have been largely Arab, still wanted the money, so they would sell their land to the Jews. So this is important. People that were living in Palestine and on all these tribes were selling their land to foreigners, that they would consider to be foreigners, Jews that were returning to uh, this area of the world. And then, of course, we have all the atrocities, six million plus Jews killed in the concentration camps. And after World War II, now what we have is Jews that had been booted out of Israel, that had lived for centuries in Europe, now were not welcome anywhere in Europe. So they got on boats. Canada wouldn't let them in. They got on boats. The United States wouldn't let them in. So literally, you got people floating around in the ocean, and they think to themselves, and I'm just simplifying it, hey, we know there's thousands over the last several decades that have moved to Israel. Maybe we should move there. So they negotiate with the British government, who's, again, working on behalf of the League of Nations, and they they decide that they're going to have conversations about setting up a, a home, a new home for Jewish people from various, quote-unquote, ethnicities across Europe. And there's discussions between uh, Palestinian, Palestinians, some of the Arab countries surrounding them, Jewish leaders, there's various maps that are drawn up. Again, not exactly prime real estate, but everyone agrees for the most part, Israel has to have a place to call home, except for the Arabs and Palestinians living there. And in 1948, the Israeli state, as we know it, which is composed of Jews and Arabs and people of some other ethnicities, declares independence. I believe it was the, a day later that the Arab countries surrounding them declared war, and they attacked the Jews. Because what happened when they were drawing the maps out, that the Israelis didn't actually get as much, the Jews didn't get as much land as they hoped, but the Arabs attacked the Jews, and they battled it out for 10 to 12 months. Well, surprise, surprise, at the end of it, the Jews win, and some of the land they originally wanted, which wasn't given to them, they took through war. So, uh, by the way, when you attack another nation, so let's suppose, stupidly, Canada decides to attack the United States. Mm -hmm. And the United States pushes back and they conquer Ontario or Manitoba. Guess what? When you win, you get to keep the land. So the Jews were attacked by the Arab countries. And because they won that war, they did not give back some of the land that was otherwise in the possession of some of their Arab aggressors. It's like, well, too bad. You attack us, we're keeping your land. So what happened is the 
boundaries of the modern state of Israel within the first year expanded out more or less to the original shape and size and boundaries that the UN had originally suggested before the Arabs uh, uh, kind of kind of vetoed it, if you will. So it, it is important to understand when we're talking about the Golan Heights, which were taken in 1967, occupation of uh, the West Bank, which still takes place today, or Gaza, which they occupied up till 2005, and I suspect are now going to reoccupy. The reason why the Jews have occupied these territories that weren't originally part of the, the UN's map is because they were attacked by people from those areas mm-hmm. and won them in war. So, I mean, how how many wars do the Arabs need to fight before they realize if you're going to attack Israel, which is a pretty hefty military, chances are at the end of the day, you're going to lose. You're going to go away angry and bitter, raise another generation of terrorists to attack again. But in the end, you'll lose. I mean, think about what's happened even with Hamas. Does Hamas, like how stupid do you have to be? to send a couple thousand guys across the border to attack a modern nation. Yeah, you had some success in butchering and killing their people, but at the end of the day, you're going to lose because I can guarantee you that as of 2024 and following, the the IDF and the Jewish government is not going to just walk back out of Gaza like they did in 2005. Mm -hmm. So when you attack Israel, you'll lose land. So Israel ultimately is going to continue to expand their territory. Now, let's talk about the state of Israel. It's important to understand that Israel is not home to just 100% Jewish people. Approximately one-fifth of the citizenry in Israel is Arab. So I've been to Nazareth, for example, which is in Israel, formal Israel. It's not in the West Bank. It's not in Gaza. It's in Israel, the state of Israel. It's largely Arab. They're Arab Israelis, and a lot of people don't know that. And then, of course, you'll see on on um, on video when you see IDF soldiers. There's black ones, there's white ones, there's Asian-looking ones. There's there's Jews there of who spent. They come from more recently African descent, European descent, North American descent. Thousands of Palestinians historically have worked in Israel outside of Gaza and outside of the West Bank. So this nonsense about Israel being an apartheid state, it just has, the lie has to be put to sleep, okay? That's, it's a lie, it's, it's not true. Now, more recently, so we have 1948, they become a state, and then um, they're attacked by their Arab neighbors, they, ex- they expand their territory, and then another conflict happens in 1967. So in 1967, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria decide they're going to attack and destroy Israel. And there's a six-day war. They lose. And so what happens is Israel says, okay, we're going to now occupy the West Bank. It's on this side of the Jordan. It's on the west side of the Jordan River. We're going to occupy the West Bank. That was formally annexed by Jordan. The Palestinians can live there, but we're going to control it, right? I mean, they just attacked us. So we're going to have an ongoing military presence there. Doesn't that make sense? If any of you have ever studied military strategy, like what planet do you have to be on to acknowledge that if a territory that's next to yours 
attacks you, it's probably not a bad idea after you've won the battle to station military outposts there to make sure it doesn't happen again, especially when every few years, terrorists from that territory come and attack your people over and over and over again. So that's a justified occupation of the West Bank. Then the Golan Heights, which is in the north of Israel, is taken from Syria, about two-thirds of it's retained uh, after the war. Israel takes control of East Jerusalem, which is also part of the Palestinian territory. So the Palestinian territories are composed of East Jerusalem, West Bank, and Gaza Strip with different administrations, different administrative structures, and different levels of, quote-unquote, military control. Now, there are there is the question of settlements. Uh, settlements are questionable uh, in, in the West Bank. There are some hyper-conservative Jews that often will just go in and set up uh, settlements, which are different than kibbutz, kibbutzim, uh, in, in the West Bank. But again, this is an area that has been patrolled by the Jews since 1967. And also, it, it begs the question, well, well, why shouldn't Jews be allowed to live in the West Bank if Arabs are allowed to live in Nazareth or allowed to live, frankly, anywhere they want in Israel if they're Israeli citizens? So settlements are questionable, but at the same time, uh, one could argue from a certain angle that they are uh, you know, long-term, uh, potentially a demonstration of two peoples that want to live together. So it, it just seems to me, it seems to me that the, many of the Palestinians are speaking out of both sides of their mouths when it's like, well, why can't we enter Israel? Oh, but we don't want any Jews in our territories. Well, if you really want to get rid of a, your supposed apartheid, why, why wouldn't you allow for both people groups to live in all those territories? Otherwise, you sort of seem like the ones that are functionally promoting apartheid by only allowing Arabs to live in places like the West Bank. And then finally, we have, uh, leading up to the moment, we have the 2005 Gaza withdrawal. So Gaza is a, a small strip. I think it's about 10 kilometers wide. I can't remember. Um, I read, but I just don't recall. It might be like 40 kilometers yeah, 40, yep. long going down to uh, Egypt. So by the way, the West Bank mm -hmm. is bordered on one side by Israel proper. And it's bordered on the other side by the Jordan. The Gaza Strip is bordered on the one side by the Mediterranean, on the top by Israel, on the side by Israel, and the bottom by uh, Egypt. So it's not like these people are trapped. They have direct access to either the Jordan or Egypt, other Islamic Arab nations. So you, people, oh, it's like an, an open tent city. No, if if the if the um, if the the Egyptians in the south want to open their border. There's opportunity for Gazan Palestinians to flow back and forth between Gaza Strip and Egypt. There's opportunity for people in the West Bank to flow back and forth between the Jordan and the West Bank. Mm -hmm. It's on Jordan and the Egyptians to allow or not allow them in. But this idea that somehow they're surrounded and trapped by a bunch of mean Jews that are just blowing up their children, it's another lie. Like, look at a map for Pete's sake. Look at a map. Israel is a very, very small uh, country. I think it's only 22,000 square kilometers. Just those two territories in the Palestinian regions are like 6,000 square kilometers surrounded by millions of square kilometers of other uh, Arab lands. So there, there's lots of opportunity. If, if Arabs want to actually be separated from Israeli Jews, there's lots of opportunity to cross borders or negotiate with the Jordanians or negotiate with the uh, 
Egyptians and leave the Jews alone, or as many Israeli Arabs have done, as I've already mentioned, uh, you know, live peaceably in places like like Nazareth. So anyway, uh, 1967, we have um, the, uh, the the control of the West Bank because they attacked Israel. It's kind of a no brainer. We have the the annexation of the Golan Heights because they attacked Israel. And then in 2005, due to a lot of global pressure, the Jews literally just moved out of Gaza. So think about that. 2005, what are we, 2023? So for 18 years, Jewish officials have not set foot in Gaza. I'm sure they have spies like all nations do. But Gaza's been on its own. They've been able to elect Hamas in 2006 and 2007 as their government. Presumably, they pay taxes to Hamas. They receive millions of dollars in aid. What the Jews do is they say, we're controlling your airspace and your land borders. Duh. Because you attack us. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, build your own economy. Mm -hmm. We're paying for your electricity. We're sending you water. Build your own economy. Instead, what Hamas does is they build tunnels. They build tunnels. They allow their people to live in poverty. But somehow, somehow it's Israel's fault. Okay, you're not, the Jews don't occupy Gaza. You've had 18 years of unmolested opportunity to build your own economy, to take responsibility for yourselves, to build your own water supplies, to negotiate with other Arab nations for whatever kind of relationships you want in terms of trade and commerce. Instead, you're building rockets and hand gliders and caches of weapons so you can attack Israelis thinking that you're going to push them out? Like, it's absolute nonsense. So here we are as Western nations sending money to a strip of land that is twice elected terrorists whose political platform is the absolute end of Israel, which is never going to happen, by the way, sending tax dollars to these people Instead of them spending it on building their own economy, they live in poverty. Most of the citizens support this stuff, but somehow the Jews are the colonialists. It's it's absolute nonsense. So the terror attack is, is just another example of the fact that Hamas is not interested in negotiating. They're not interested in... Uh, fairness, equality in a heterozygous society where people of different backgrounds can live in harmony and peace. The bottom line is the government of the Gaza Strip, and to a lesser degree, but it's pretty evident it's true with them too, the government, the governments, the coalition governments of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, they're not about fairness and equality. Mm-hmm. Their, their goal is not to stop bombings. Their goal is to destroy and kill and murder the Jews who are living in uh, the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. And if they had any honor about them at all, if they want to declare war, what do you do in war? Well, you declare it, just like the, the Israelis just declared war on Gaza. You don't attack civilians. The problem is Islamic law, depending how it's interpreted, allows for that. And Chris, this is why, this is precisely why tens of thousands of Muslims, 
many of whom are not even from Palestinian descent around the world are marching in cities like Toronto or Vancouver or Sydney, Australia. They refuse to denounce the actions of Hamas. They want all the Jews dead. That's what they want. They want all the Jews dead. They will not negotiate. They're not looking for peaceable relationships. There is an absolute world of difference between terrifying citizens mm -hmm. by coming into their villages and killing them in their beds and bombing an enemy after the declaration of war, after having told the citizens to leave, after having warning people through text messages and other means, leave, we are about to bomb your area to kill Hamas. There's a world of difference. And this idea that there's some sort of moral equivalency mm -hmm. between the activities of Hamas and the activities of the IDF, again, notwithstanding some bad apples in every, in every uh, population, is absolutely demonic. Mm -hmm. So Israel has been there for, the Jews, I should say, have been there for thousands of years, thousands of years. And while other groups obviously have come and gone from the land, if you want to talk about occupiers and colonialists, although I feel super uncomfortable with that language applied to anyone, you'd have to apply that to the Arabs hmm. um, from 629 onward. And even in terms of the modern uh, you know, political landscape, the Jews are not there to kick all the Arabs out. Again, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of Israelis that are of Arab background. So that's a bit of a, a background. Obviously, there's a lot of nuances to it. There's a lot of details we mm -hmm. can discuss, but that's kind of a background to uh, how we got here, what the ultimate goals of Hamas is. The ultimate, the, the goal of the Israeli state is not to eliminate Arabs. Mm -hmm. The goal of the Palestinian states is to eliminate the Jews. And uh, that's why uh, people that are committed to basic morality, regardless of your view of the righteousness of the Israeli government, people that are committed to basic morality are going to condemn Hamas and are going to stand with uh, the Israelis as they defend life itself from being snuffed out by the actions of heinous terrorist organizations like Hamas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, a very... A expansive history um, brings us up to today. And I think one of the questions that might remain for listeners as they listen is, in addition to educating people in this podcast, what should we do in response? What What's the action point? Um, obviously, prayer would be one I would imagine, but what are some of your thoughts? Well, to the Christian community, I, like, I, I do believe there's one people of God throughout history. And under the old covenant, that was primarily composed of the physical seed of Abraham. And under, obviously there was Goyim, there were Gentiles, yeah, Rahab, Uriah the Hittite, yeah. Rahab, that, that entered into the covenantal people of God, even into the genealogy of Christ. And under the new covenant, um, there's, a, there's a Gentile church that has lots of people of Jewish descent in it. And frankly, most people have a little, a lot of people have mixed blood like I have a something like a 10th grade grandmother who is Jewish. I don't know what percentage that would make me. But anybody that comes out of Europe or even Asia, chances are a high percentage of people, I shouldn't say everybody, but a high percentage will have Jewish blood in them. So over 2,000 years, people get mixed up and intermarry. But 
that's maybe a bit of a bunny trail. The point I wanted to make is the Christian church is composed of Jews and, and Gentiles alike who surrendered themselves in faith to the Messiah. And there's lots of discussions. There's continuities and discontinuities between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant uh, people of God. And we know that we all agree that in the end, there's gonna be one eschatological community in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's that's basic eschatology. I, I would be surprised if any of my listeners would have a problem with that, mm-hmm. but there are differences of opinion as to the future of Israel and whatnot. I would just say that's not really the point of what's happening right now. So while mm-hmm. it's it's appropriate to debate your your eschatology, I think it's a little narrow-minded and a little foolish to immediately start correcting people that are saying, well, I stand for Israel because I believe in the future of Israel or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, God's redemptive okay. timeline. So debate your your eschatology, but this is about basic morality and people's right to survival. Uh, so I'm just going to throw that out there for people to think about. Secondly, don't be afraid to criticize the behavior of Jewish people or the Israeli government when they misbehave. Mm-hmm. That's fair. It's fair to criticize groups like the Hilltop Youth, which, from what I understand, I've seen some videos on it. You know, beat up. Arabs in order to take settlement land in the West Bank. Whether that's true or not, don't send me an email defending them. If it's not them, it's there's other groups. If you can't admit there's bad apples in every movement, there's not much conversation I can have with you. So don't be afraid to criticize the behavior of Jews when they misbehave. Maybe there's even been stories of IDF soldiers that have done nasty things. You know, we can criticize that. And third, we don't have an obligation as Christians to support the Israeli government, regardless of your eschatology. They are not living in accordance with God's laws. They've rejected the Messiah. And just like the Canadian government, while there are still things they do right, Mm -hmm. there are many things they do wrong. So you don't have to say, oh, I stand with Israel's defense of its territory. That means I think Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be in heaven with me, and he's a great guy, and he must be a believer, and he's super. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say stuff like that. that. That's nonsense. There are bad apples in every army. But if you look at the history of the land, the Jews are acting more righteously than the Palestinians are, hands down. The Palestinians, as a group, are not innocent victims. They have land at their disposal, 6,000 square kilometers. If they stop bombing and terrorizing Israel and spend their money on developing civil infrastructure, business, commerce, prove themselves to be trustworthy, here's what would happen. They would be able to develop very prosperous regions in in Gaza and the West Bank. They would be able to develop commercial relationships between countries like the Jordan and Egypt in the South. And over time, there would be opportunities for there to probably even be open borders Mm -hmm. between Palestinian territories and Jewish territories. That's never going to happen if you're saying to another people group, we don't care what happens, we're not going to negotiate, we want you dead, this is our land, get out of there. It's just never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And chances are it's not going to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Okay, So we, we must denounce Hamas's attack. In this case, we must take the side of Israel. Again, notwithstanding some bad apples and imperfection, we must take the side of Israel. And we need to also say to the to 
those that are supporters of Hamas or Palestinian terrorism. How stupid can you possibly be? You're not going to win. You're not going to win. You don't have international support. You don't have regional power. You're not going to win by going in and chopping heads off babies and killing people in the streets. Like, How stupid can you possibly be? Maybe it's an opportunity for you to take out your aggression, but what you've done is wicked and it is evil by every metric, mm -hmm. by every metric. Man, even Justin Trudeau is condemning you. You know, it's, you know you've done bad when Justin Trudeau is condemning you. And then the final lesson is for us to continue to denounce multiculturalism. So multiculturalism is not the same as multi-ethnicism. So we are not racists. We don't even believe in race. We believe in ethno and ethnicities. We're not racists. We don't believe that only one skin tone is welcome in Canada, but culture has nothing to do with your race. That's about your values, your beliefs, your, your, your religious beliefs, your government structures, what you believe to be normative in that regard. And the problem in Canada right now, we supposedly have this multiculturalistic society. And what, what do we have? We have people that rightfully are mourning for the dead in Israel today, and we have members uh, citizens of Canada marching on the streets, cheering on the death of innocents in Israel because they believe this grand lie about colonialization and occupation. By the way, even if it was true that the Jews were colonial colonialists and occupiers, it doesn't give you the right to go and kidnap four-and-a-half-month-old babies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give you the right to do that. So we need to hold them accountable, and we need to denounce it. Now, by the way, a quick sidebar about Immigration. I'm not opposed to immigration. Okay, I'm not opposed to immigration. We're all immigrants. Everyone's indigenous to some place, and everyone's a, an immigrant to some other place. Yeah. By one way, either in your generation or in your for, a generation of one of your forebears. And by the way, in Canada, you, you need 2.1. You need a birth rate of 2.1 per couple. So every couple has to produce 2.1 children just to stabilize your population. In Canada, we're producing 1.33. So if we're not going to have babies, of course we need immigrants to come from other countries and replace those that are dying to pay for civil infrastructure and whatnot. But the problem with Canada is it's so indiscriminate. It's like you can just come and believe and do and say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. and, and I would like to see us form a, a national identity fundamentally grounded upon the laws of God so that if people come here and say, hey, you know, do you actually believe in our constitution? It probably needs to be more robust and beefy. Do you actually believe in liberty? Do you actually believe in the supremacy of God? Do you actually affirm whether you're a Christian or not, the historic Christian mm -hmm. roots of this country? And if you don't, you're not coming. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing how many people don't see that. And unfortunately, it's causing increased division in our country. We are a country that's divided. We're not inclusive. We're divided. We're fragmented. We're scattered. It's we're we're at war ideologically, and it's it's becoming very very difficult to work with other groups on even basic social initiatives because of that. Mm -hmm. So, case in point, a month ago, we were part of the uh, one million march for children. It was largely initiated by Muslims in Canada, and. Christians and non-Christians and others joined in that because it's like a common cause against the mutilation of children. I'm out. I'm tapping out because I see organizers, 
Muslim organizers of the One Million March for Children, promoting uh, the efforts of Hamas in the Middle East mm -hmm. and denouncing Israel. I see the Windsor Mosque raising money for the Gazans and not denouncing Hamas. I'm not speaking at your protest. I'm not coming to your protest. If on one hand you're saying, oh, we don't agree with the mutilation of children, but it's okay to chop the heads off of children in some Israeli kibbutz because after all they deserve it because they're Jews. I don't march with people like that, so I'm tapping out. And it's unfortunate, but uh, I wanna send a message to the Islamic community in Canada that we love you. Of course, we want you to become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid to debate you. I've been to your mosques, at least a couple of them. I've sat down for shawarma with some brothers from the Middle East and had conversations with them about faith issues. But I'm not gonna stand with you on social issues if you can't even recognize something as basic as the heinous efforts of Hamas. We'll do our own protests. You have yours. We're not going to be at them. And it's it's unfortunate and it's sad, but I'm not going to support something uh, that's largely being led and fueled by people that can't even recognize basic morality on these issues. So those are some thoughts for our listeners to, to mull over. Ho hopefully this has been you know informative and uh, helpful. And unfortunately, it's a sad conversation to have, Chris. It's, mm -hmm. it's very it's a very sad conversation to have, but it, but it needs to be had. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you for taking the time to walk us through the history of Israel. I think that's very helpful to understanding where we are today and hopefully learning the lessons from the past as well. We just remind our listeners to uh, find this broadcast, to share it out, to share the podcast so that others can listen to it, share it on your social media platforms and through text message and whatnot. And you can find it both on the pursuitofglory.org website as well as the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and their companion app. Download those and then tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.